Howell Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. We have a lot of ground to cover in the next three hours, so let's get right to it. There are, in in the world of athletics, professional sports, there, it's, there's the comp there's a com- the competition that goes on with it but also there there's marketing and so what happens is it is not unusual to have a, a sports franchise whether it's a basketball team or a baseball team or a hockey team that will have certain themed nights in an effort to try to well i think recognize groups that they believe are important in the community and also let's be honest try to uh, boost attendance that's why for example you know every year the brewers pick one night during Pride Month, and they will have a Pride Night at American Family Field, and they'll have special deals for groups that come in, and they'll recognize, again, some of the LGBTQ um, operations and entities in, in the area. It, it's, it's what they do, and it's fine. Last Tuesday night, the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team, and I have to confess, I'm, I'm not a huge hockey fan, but the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team decided that they were going to have their their Philadelphia Pride Night, and it was going to be, again, a a celebration of the, the gay community. One of the things that was involved in this is that when the players come out for like their pregame skate around like with basketball you have the the pregame shoot around or in baseball you know they go out and have the warm-ups one of the things was the players the philadelphia flyer players were going to wear different jerseys they'd have on like rainbow themed like pride themed jerseys to come out and, and when they did their skate around and then that would be for 15 or 20 minutes and then you know when they go back they would come back for the game and they would be in their regular jersey well okay that 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 all went as planned with one exception there is a player for the Philadelphia Flyers his name is Ivan Provavorov Provavorov and he doesn't come out on the ice for the pregame warm up he stays back in the locker room all his other teammates come out. They're in the pride-themed jersey. He does not. Then when the game starts, he comes out, and he was in the starting lineup in his regular jersey. All right, so this becomes a, a controversy. Where was he during the, the pregame? And he says, look, I, I made the decision that I did not want to participate in the pregame warm-ups. He said, look, I, I respect everyone. He said, I respect everybody's choices, but my choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. So he says, look, my my religion teaches me that this this is wrong, and I just chose to honor that. He said, um, I'm uh, I'm Russian Orthodox. My religion says that um, that this this is wrong. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not coming out and publicly condemning people because of their sexual orientation, but I just did not feel it was appropriate for me to participate in 
this particular pregame activity. So I chose not to do that. All right. This has become a huge controversy. There are people out there saying that the Philadelphia Flyers should be fined a million dollars for allowing this player to, quote unquote, get away with this. I mean, they they didn't suspend him. They didn't bench him. They didn't fine him. They simply said, "Okay, if you choose not to participate, we're going to let you not participate. All right. And there's again, the, the Internet is just you know, going crazy about this, about how, you know, this has been so hurtful to the team. It's been so hurtful to the gay community. How how dare the Flyers consider doing something like this? Now, the flip side of it is that the jerseys for the Provavarov, his jerseys, they have sold out online. After this has become a controversy, Uh, Multiple media outlets are now reporting that his jerseys have been selling out in multiple stores online. As of at least the the time this article that I'm looking at was written, the only jerseys of his that remain in the official NHL shop um, are jerseys for women or are extremely the extra small sizes. So once this became a controversy, what you saw is that a lot of people decided to vote with their pocketbooks, and they decided that they were going to support the hockey player who simply said, look, I just just do not choose to participate in this particular activity because... Well, I, I just have certain religious beliefs, and they dictate to me that I, I shouldn't be supporting this. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, let, let's tee this up. Should the Philadelphia Flyers be disciplined by the NHL for essentially allowing this player to opt out of the pregame LBTGQ um, activities? I mean, should they be disciplined for this? Should the player be fined? Or should he have the right to say, you know, I choose not to participate in this? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Where do you come down on this? All the other teammates went along with this, participated, had no issue. This guy says, no, look, this is it's just contrary to my religious beliefs. I chose to opt out. Should he have had the ability to do that? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So this is the controversy. If you're just tuning in, last Tuesday night, a defenseman, a player for the Philadelphia Flyers, elects to opt out of wearing like a rainbow jersey on pride night in, in philadelphia during the pregame warm-ups he, he and then goes on to play in the game people are outraged that the flyers allowed him to play people are saying that they should be fined a million dollars by the nhl that he should be banned for doing this his simple remark is look um my, my i am i am of the russian orthodox religion we do not believe um, we do not believe in same-sex marriage or things of the like. Now, you can argue that he's wrong. You can argue that you disagree with him. But he's simply saying, I just did not feel like I should be compelled to come out and make this statement that I do not believe in. 
All right. And the result, the interesting thing is the free market shows that after this happened and he got ripped by all these commentators and stuff, his jersey has now become the most popular jersey on the NFL store. You, you, matter of fact, you can't even buy it anymore unless you're willing to buy it in a very, very small size. So 855-616-1620. Let's start with Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Uh, I, I guess I side with the player because, you know, like the team wants to win. They want to have their best guys out there. You know, you don't know how much this guy's worth. Or maybe he just want to take the two-week suspension. You know, so the fan base hurts. Our team doesn't do as well, so everybody that works here doesn't do as well. I mean, we tippy-toe over everybody's choice of gender, and we tippy-toe over religion, and this guy, you know, he comes from another culture, another, uh, another. he has a different religion. And plus, I mean, there, you know, he might feel like the people he um, grew up with or, you know, over in Russia might look at this as a kind of... No, no, Bob, thanks, no, thanks for the call. No, I mean, I, I understand. He's, I, I mean, I, I guess, I, I don't know that we've gotten to this point in this country where people have to describe and d- defend their, for example, their religious beliefs. Now, again, you can disagree with him o- on this entire issue. I mean, keep in mind, 15 years ago, Barack Obama opposed gay marriage. I mean, that, that, at least when, when he ran for, for office. But I think, I guess, my, my point is, I think players do have some individual convictions. You know, a couple of our texters are making the point that remember when you had the issue in the NH in the NFL where you know people would kneel on the sidelines or refuse to come out and participate, you know, in the national anthem, and the decision was okay, that that's fine, and lots of people supported that. Okay, well, that that that's fine. If you decide that you don't want to stand for the national anthem, all right, they let you stay back in the locker room. Isn't this the flip side of that? And and where do you draw the line? Let's say, let's say that Philadelphia decided to have a pro-life night, and they were going to you know, celebrate the pro-life community, and they did something again similar with some symbolism or, or whatever. And you have players who are pro-choice, and those players made the decision: look, we we don't we don't agree with this. We don't want to have to participate in this. Okay, would, would anybody argue that, oh, no, they should be forced to come out there and do that? I mean, where do you draw the line? Let's say that this was a, hey, we're going to have a Black Lives Matter night, and you have some players who decide that they don't support everything that goes along with that. So they decide that they're not going to come out. Should they be disciplined? You see where this goes. What if Philadelphia decides that they're going to have a let's back the badge night and they're going to have people come out and they're going to skate around with the the thin blue line things? And maybe you have a couple players who, I don't know, aren't sympathetic to that. You know, should they be forced to do this and should the team be fined and should the players be suspended or anything because they choose not to? And my answer would be no. My answer would be that you have that the players up to a point have the right to choose what to do. In this case, he did not his he did not even make a public protest. So this isn't one where he decided that he was going to, you know, not stand for the national anthem in public view. He just decided, I, I'm going to stay in. I'm not going to come out, so I'm not going to make it all about myself. It, it's And it wouldn't have been, 
but for the fact that some people noticed, hey, he wasn't here and he wasn't wearing the jersey. Let's talk to Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. I I agree with you 100% and the last caller. I mean, he, he didn't disrespect anybody. I think he did what he should have done. The world, you know, or sports and everything doesn't revolve around one particular specific event. I think if somebody wants to do what he did, it's fine. You know, if like you said, he's from Russia. Maybe over there they don't believe in that. And he did right. what I think he should have done. Well, I mean, at least... I agree with you. Yeah, thanks for the call. Well, at least he did what, what he... I guess the question is, should he have had a, a right to do this? Or now... and. Now, some people are saying, okay, well, well, how is this different than, let's say, because, Jeff, remember, you know, you were condemning the people who refused to stand on the sidelines or took a knee during the national anthem. To me, this is different, and I'll tell you why. He, he did, it's not like he came out in the warm-ups wearing, like, the regular jersey, therefore kind of exposing the flyers and, and being contrary to what they were trying to accomplish with their gay pride night. He, he stayed in the locker room. This, to me, is the equivalent of the NFL players, for example, who don't want to stand during the national anthem. Fine, don't, don't come out during the national anthem. Okay, you're, you're not using your position to embarrass the team or to create a, a controversy. He stayed in the locker room. If he would have come out and gone through the pre-skate warm-up wearing his regular jersey when everybody else is wearing the pride thing, that, I think, might might have been... There might have been different analysis. In this particular case, he just said, look, I just did not feel comfortable with this. And, you know, shouldn't you, shouldn't individual people be able to have the choice as to whether or not they, they do that? Or have we gotten to this point now where you, you have to, we all have to feel the same way about a particular issue? Now, whenever I talk about this, I, I always, I always throw in, I, you know, I, I, sexual orientation isn't an issue with me. It's, it's never, been an issue with me i grew up with friends going back to the 70s who were gay and and that that's that's fine this would not have been an issue with me but that's me but if you have people who have a different sort of religious background or whatever you know should they be coerced essentially to participate in something and then find and held responsible if they opt out eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Nate in Wapan. Nate, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Um, I agree with you. It sounds like the explanation he gave was pretty reasonable. And to be honest, um, if he chose not to participate in something, it's not really anyone's business. Um, especially with the explanation he gave, but. If he were of Muslim faith or Jewish faith, I don't think it would be really this big of a deal. I think maybe there is a little bit of some anti-Christian stuff going on in the culture a little bit, especially surrounding LGBTQ stuff. But it's not really anyone's business if he doesn't want to participate. No, thanks, Nicole. I, I mean, I think I, I, I look. I, I think he should have the right as to whether he wants to participate or not. 
And as I was saying a minute ago, if he had done this in a way that ended up being a distraction, like I say, he's the one that comes out and he refuses to wear the jersey and he goes through the warm-ups, okay, maybe that, that's kind of a different story. But that's not what he did. He stayed in the locker room. He's, you know, it is the equivalent of, gee, I'm not going to be on national TV taking a knee and making it all about myself. I'm just going to stay in the locker room. That, that, to me, is, I think, the responsible way to handle this. And like I say, you can, you can agree or disagree with the position that the guy take, takes. And you can say, oh, he's just a, a mindless bigot, and I'm never going to buy his jersey, and I'm not going to root for him, and I'm going to cheer against the Philadelphia Flyers because of this. And if you take that position, I understand it. I, I think it's a reasonable thing. But last time I checked, this was, this was America, and people did get the right to, again, I think express their opinions on, on certain issues without fear of necessarily having themselves fined or disciplined. And from the perspective of, of sports, the, the idea that somebody would suggest that the NHL should be, the Flyers should be fined a million dollars because they let the guy play after this, to me, is just the ultimate example of intolerance. And I say this again, understanding that you can completely disagree with the man's position. You can think that, gee, if it was me, I would have just gone along with this. But he, he expressed his opinion. He explained why he did not make this a cause. And interesting, like I say, America is voting with its wallets. And at this point in time, you know, you want to try to buy one of this guy's jerseys. Good luck. I, I have a question. And, and that question is <clears throat> four words. What took so long? Uh, back in May, last May, May 8th, I believe, there was a firebombing of a pro-life clinic in Madison. You remember, this was immediately or at least shortly after the Roe versus Wade was struck down. You had a Molotov cocktail, which was thrown through the window of this pro-life center. There were um, there, there was there was graffiti that was scratched across the building saying that, you know, if women's rights to choose aren't safe, nobody's going to be safe. And it was signed by, I think, this group claiming credit called Jane's Addiction. Well, this was was a big, big deal. Now, uh, thankfully, nobody was killed, but they certainly could have been killed. Yesterday, the FBI announced that they were going to issue, put out a $25,000 reward for information on the firebombing of the Madison anti-abortion group. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's great that they're putting out a $25,000 reward to try to see if somebody will come forward and offer some information that they can use to arrest these domestic terrorists that tried to firebomb this this pro-life center. My question is, May of 2022 is when the firebombing occurs. It is now late January of 2023. That's over nine months. What, What took so long? And I think it's fair to ask, has this not been a priority investigation? And if it hasn't been a priority investigation, why hasn't it been? I don't have a problem with issuing the $25,000 reward. I think that's appropriate. But maybe they should have done it, oh, a week or two weeks after the terrorist attack instead of waiting nine months. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, if you follow me... On uh, Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 number of new postings, including some which generate well, a, a, a quite a bit of heated response, I, I would say. And, and again, it all kind of comes down to this 
this idea of, of lack of, of tolerance that, that's out there. Tony Dungy, know who Tony Dungy is? You know, former, uh, he was the head coach of Indianapolis. He was the head coach at Tampa Bay. He's now a commentator on uh, NBC, I think it's NBC, on Sunday Night Sunday night Football. So, you know, Tony Dungy, he is also a very, very religious guy who makes no secrets about, you know, his religious beliefs. All right, so Tony Dungy, has announced that he is going to be attending the March for Life, which is scheduled for Washington, D.C. this weekend, I, I believe. He And, of course, the, the March for Life is the, the giant, you know, pro- uh, you know, pro-life sort of statement where people come together from all over across the country and, um, you know, support the, the pro-life movement. Now, it has new meaning this year, given the Supreme Court's decision last year striking down Roe versus Wade. Um, similarly, interestingly, in Madison over the weekend, there's going to be a huge pro-choice rally that, that's going to be there, and people are going to be demonstrating, talking about the need to, in places like Wisconsin, uh, legalize the rights to abortion. So it, it, abortion is, again, a, a front-burner issue. But Tony Dungy says he, he's going to attend the, the March for Life. O- okay. It is amazing. As a matter of fact, I've got some links to some of the stories. He, and again, it's the Compassionate Tolerant Left which is on display again. I'm looking at some of this stuff saying, oh, if he's just, he's nothing but, he's nothing but a bigot. It's, there's no way that the NFL should allow him the, the voice that he has. He says he's going to attend the pro-life, the, the, the march for life. You know, how dare he do that? Well, look, I think he has the right to do this. Now, it's not like, He's going on Sunday night football, and he's using that as a background for which he's going to proselytize on, on his issues. Okay, if he was doing that, I think that that's where you know NBC wants to get concerned. But you know, if he decides that he wants to do this on his own time, why shouldn't he have the right to do it? And similarly, I would say that if you know another commentator decided that they wanted to go to Madison, Wisconsin, and they wanted to participate in this giant pro-choice rally that's going to have, that they should be able to do this. The last time I checked, this was America, and we still had our rights to take our, our different positions that were out there and not you know, be labeled, oh, you're, you're, you're nothing but a bigot, or this is appalling, or how dare you, you know, how dare you have the audacity to suggest that, you know, you believe that, you know, that, that abortion is wrong. Well, lots of people believe abortion is wrong, and I understand there's other people who have a contrary opinion. I think we just have to respect people's rights to express those different opinions. Is that too much to ask? All right. I want to use this to segue into this next topic. It's something that we have discussed on a couple occasions in the past, and I know it generates a a huge amount of response. I just, frankly, there are some issues that are hard, and there are some that are easy. A number of school boards, I'm just looking through some of the the stories in the local newspaper, the Muskego Norway School Board, the Germantown School Board, the Arrowhead School Board, the Waukesha School Districts, and that's just to name a few. They have adopted a policy on the use of pronouns. You know, this is a situation where you have a kid who is a biological male who identifies as a female, and instead of being called John, wants to be called Jane or whatever. 
All right, that, that, that happens. The policies say that the schools will not do this, will not allow the kids to choose their own pronouns unless they have the permission of the parents. If the parents come in and say, look, that this is what's going on, and, you know, John, we, we've decided he's really a Jane, and we've been working with whoever we've been working with, and, you know, we're okay with this. Okay, if the parents sign off on this, then, then it's okay. The school boards are saying, as a matter of policy, that the teachers and the school administrators and the records, there, there are some school districts that the kid comes in and says, I, I want to be referred to as Jane. So they'll change the records on the, the kid's official stuff, and they'll refer to the child as Jane and, instead of, of John. And then when the parents show up at the pre-trial, at the pre-trial, at the, the student conferences and things of the like, the, the teachers will start calling the kid John again so the parents don't know what is going on at schools. These different policies simply say that if you're going to do something like this, it has to be with the approval of and the knowledge of the parents. And you're not going to, the teachers and the school administrators are not going to be empowered to lie to the parents. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, whenever I talk about this, I always hear from some of the people who say, no, you, 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 don't, you don't understand how hurtful this is, and you don't understand you know, how bad this is, and, and children should be able to choose. And my point is, it's not a question of children being able to choose, but the, the operative thing is they are children. And you have to, I, I think, work with not behind the backs of the parents and this idea that well okay we've got a problem here so maybe the parents aren't on board with this and and the child you know has difficulty talking about it to the parents well okay if that's the case what's the point of calling john jane in school if in the rest of the kid's life you know he's going to be referred to as john if that is seriously an issue and somebody believes or school administrators believe that the child might be in danger at, at home well maybe that's a situation where you bring in child protective services or something like that but but short of that going along with a, a 13 year old child who decides that hey i i want to i i think i'm a boy trapped in a girl's body or vice versa and i want to change my pronouns without bringing in the parents to me is absolutely insane now you look at all the stories that get written about this and it's all oh, this is a it's a controversial policy you know it's uh let's see there's uh you know some people end up objecting to this well i, I understand that maybe there's some people who object to it but to me this just makes perfect sense you've got to bring the parents in and if it's something again that you feel the school administrators feel that okay there's something going on at home and if the child comes out to the parents and has this discussion that child might be at risk well maybe that's where you get the authorities in but i just don't think school officials and teachers should ever be lying to the parents or making these decisions without involving the parents 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment so very glad to have you with us and, and again see my position on this is i i understand that 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 you you do in fact have 
transgender students. I, I, I get it, and I understand that there is going to be that boy that was you know trapped in a girl's body or, or, or vice versa. Now, I think that this is it's a big decision, though, and I think a lot of young people are very impressionable, and that's why it's a decision that is not to be undertaken lightly if you want to change pronouns or, or things like that. And I think it's best the decision made in consultation with the kid and, and maybe some psychiatric professionals and you know maybe some people who specialize in this area, but, but certainly also the, the parents. And so this idea that you have school systems when the, the 12- or 13-year-old kid comes in and says, hey, I, I think I, I know – that I have been a boy all my life, but I think I'm really a girl, so I want to be referred to as she and her, and I want my name changed on my records to Jane instead of John. And and it, if, the, if the parents are behind that, that, that that's okay. I, I think that's, that's fine. But this has to be a decision that you make in conjunction with the parents. And if there's some reason, if the kids say, well, I just don't feel comfortable coming out to my, my parents, well, maybe that's where, you know, the school can act as liaison. You can get some professionals to help out. But I just don't think you can do stuff or should do stuff behind the, the kids' backs. In the discussion when, when Arrowhead adopted this, you know, one of the parents said, look, I, I find it interesting that as a dad, I'm alerted to my kids' grades. I'm alerted if they're marked absent. I'm alerted if they're going on a field trip. I have to sign up on all that stuff. That's pretty minor stuff. If it's something big, like my kid, considering that they're, they're a different gender, I want to know about it, and I think parents have the right to know, and that's all we're asking. And I guess I just look at this, and I think it's it just makes eminent sense that this is the situation. And to suggest otherwise is... Well, candidly, I think to suggest otherwise is is ridiculous. You've got to get the parents involved in these different conversations, especially a conversation that is as significant as this. Jeff, I'm so glad my children and grandchildren are done with school. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that there is an element about that. Jeff, there's a lot of parents, and certainly some school administrators don't understand, is that children don't have rights until they turn 18. Why is that so hard to understand that a parent should be involved in the decision-making process? And again, as I was saying, if they're... If the concern is safety, and somebody was texting me, well, what could be a safety issue? Well, the people who advocate for these policies say, okay, if if the parents knew that the kid considered themselves you know, transgender, it would put them at risk at home. That, that's at least the argument that's made. Well, my, my point is then – if that is the issue, that's where maybe you need some intervention. You, you need to say, okay, we've got to figure out a way to work this out, and you get the experts and you get the social workers in and you figure out a way to approach the parents instead of just simply saying we're going to set up this dual system and we're going to affirmatively lie to parents and allow 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds to make these sort of decisions themselves. My guess is... This really doesn't happen that, that much. You know, on most occasions, my guess is that if you get to the point where, hey, you know, you're, you're a boy and you want to start dressing as a girl and you want to identify as a girl and all that sort of stuff, my guess is the parents are, are, are 
know about it. And my guess is that the parents, it's not going to necessarily come as a surprise to them. So again, it, it should be, it shouldn't be a problem. It should just be, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, and yeah, we think, you know, we're going to be working with John to help with this transition. And yes, it's okay with us that you do it at school. But these different school board policies, and it's so funny to me because whenever, whenever like the local newspaper writes about it, it talks about how this is all just so incredibly controversial. What's controversial about saying that parents who are responsible for raising their children have a right to know what's going on at school? There are some things that are just absolutely bizarre. And one of the frustrations that that I have, and it kind of comes into the category of, of can't we all get along, which was sort of a, a theme of of the, the first hour of, of the program. And why does everything have to be almost a, a death sport? Tony uh, Dungy, the, the NFL commentator, decides he wants to go to the the uh, March for Life. Oh, this is terrible. You know, he, he's this bigot. He, you know, we, we, he needs to be condemned for doing something like that. The hockey player decides that, you know, he, because of his religious beliefs, doesn't want to participate in this team-sanctioned, a pride event. Now you can agree with him, like I say, or disagree with him, but 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 he doesn't have the. But the argument is that he doesn't have the right to do that. And it, it kind of this idea that we just have to just it, everything becomes this death sport, and we have to figure out ways to well, we either have to um, you know demonize the other side, or in the case of this next story, we we have to play the race card. It, okay, in Madison. The People's Republic of Madison, there is this ongoing controversy about building a new jail. And the, they're, they're looking at spending a large amount of money to, to build, to consolidate some of the old, the, the old jails that they have and build a brand spanking new jail. And it's going to cost like $170 million or something like that. Now, I, I take no position on the merits of that other than that this has been you know, going on for a while. But here's the story. The current Dane County Sheriff is, his name is Calvin um, Barrett. And he, he's, he's black. So in an effort to try to get the Dane County Board to go ahead and approve a referendum that would go on the ballot in, in April and have voters decide whether they're, they're going to go ahead and put some more money in to, to build this jail. So he, he's been trying to use his influence as the sheriff to try to bring this about. So what happened is a couple days ago, Barrett has a press conference. And he's there with the last three sheriffs, the last three Dane County sheriffs, Gary Hamblin, David Mahoney, and Rick Ramish. Okay, this goes back a long time. These are the last three sheriffs. And they're there, and the idea is, here, we're going to have this press conference, and we're going to make this push, and we're going to urge the, the county board to put this referendum on. And the argument here is, okay, this isn't a political thing. These are the last four sheriffs, and they're all out there saying, we, we need the new facility, and we've been trying to get it. So you have the last four sheriffs that appear. Here's, here's the way the story was reported on TV out in Madison. Members of the Dane County Board of Supervisors Black Caucus fired back hard at Sheriff Calvin Barrett over the jail consolidation issue. These remarks came two days after Barrett stood alongside three of his predecessors to push his plan and hours before the board would decide what they're going to do. 
Appalled was the word District 14 Supervisor Anthony Gray used to describe his reaction to Tuesday's news conference. He and other board members felt attacked and that Barrett was blaming them for holding up the project. Sheriff Barrett stood on stage with three white men and in the finest tradition of Willie Lynch attacked the integrity, the competence, and the fundamental intellect of his colleagues on the county board. That kind of salvo cannot go unanswered. Sheriff Barrett stood on stage with three white men and in the finest tradition of Willie Lynch. I mean, seriously. Okay, he's there with the last three sheriffs. They are arguing that these supervisors who are trying to block this are are wrong. But rather than simply saying he's, he's wrong, we've got to racialize this. We've got to play the race card. How dare he be on the stage with three white men who, by the way, were the last three sheriffs in Dane County, and then you make references to Willie Lynch in the finest, uh, in the finest tradition of that. Th- this idea that we just have to go to extremes just drives me absolutely crazy, and it's one of the things that's going to keep good people out of public service for a long time. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I have a new Wagner's rule of life that I'm going to announce after this particular segment. Greg Stubbe is a, a congressman from Florida. He's a Republican congressman, uh, one of the rising stars in the GOP. Um, he's been in Congress since 2019. He's a former, he's an Army veteran. He served in the uh, state legislature. He's going to be joining the Ways and Means Committee, which, which of course, shapes fiscal policy. Big, big deal. He's from Florida. He represents uh, he, he it's like if you take like the Fort Myers area and you run north up to Sarasota, that that's kind of his that's sort of his district. Well, there was all this consternation earlier this week because the reports were he had been hospitalized, and there was all sorts of people saying, you know, his his condition is very serious, etc. And the thinking was, okay, well, what what happened to this guy who's you know Army veteran, forty four years old? What had happened? Well, as it turned out, he fell off a, a ladder. Uh, the story is that he was at his at his home, and he lives kind of in Sarasota. He was up on a 22-foot ladder cutting tree limbs on his Florida property. And I guess what, what happened is, as he was cutting one of the, as he was cutting the, the tree limbs, a branch hit the ladder knocking him to the ground. And apparently there were a couple witnesses who had, had seen him, had seen the fall, like a neighbor and somebody else would come over to, to, to talk to him or something, and he was up on this ladder. So he's, he's 22, 25 feet above the ground, and he's, he's, he's cutting branches, and one of the branches falls and hits the ladder. He falls, and apparently he landed, um, he, he landed like face first. I mean, he, he, he went down and hit front first, and he was... Um, I, the, the good news is that he's <clears throat> he's bruised and he's dazed and he has several serious injuries, but they say are none are life threatening. And he was moved out of the ICU yesterday afternoon. But but still, he fell twenty two twenty five feet off off a ladder, you know, and landed, you know, landed on his front. That that's that's not good. And he's probably incredibly lucky because you don't have to, you know, imagine very far to imagine a situation like this. And it's either fatal 
or alternatively, you know, you end your, you end up paralyzed, you know, for life, things like that. So if you can, if you can have a lucky outcome about falling off a 22 foot ladder, this is the, the the best outcome I think you could ask. But nevertheless, he, he's going to be gone for a while. I mean, he's he's seriously injured about this. And I guess I was thinking about this, and my reaction was, what's he doing up on a ladder? And, and I, I guess I, I just, I, I look and I, I think back, maybe it's just other people who I've known in my life who've been up on, on ladders and, and certainly not even 22-foot ladders, and, and they've, they've fallen, and they've injured themselves badly. I, I know somebody who ended up paralyzed after falling off a ladder when they were cleaning their, their gutters. And I, I understand that there are certain businesses. If you're, if you're a roofer, you're up on ladders all the time. If you're you know, a painter, you know, you're up on ladders all the time. But, but this, guy's, this guy's a congressman. And I also know from at least friends of mine in my own life, we, we have this conversation because I'll be talking to people and they'll say, well, what are, you, I'm, what are you doing this afternoon? Well, I, I'm, I'm up on the ladder cleaning out the, the gutters on the second floor. And I want to say, okay, and I do say, you're you know, 58 years old and you're up on a ladder 20-some feet above the ground to kind of clear out the gutters. Don't you know that there's people that you can hire that, that are going to do this? Our number Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I want to talk about climbing up on ladders, and and I guess the the question is, if, if, first of all, if you're a professional, I, I get it. I mean, there are there are pros that do that. Like I say, you know, house painters or firefighters or, or whatever. But for the average homeowner, going up on, and I'm not talking about step ladders necessarily, but but at some point in time, you know, these ladders that you lean up against the roof, uh, against the side of the building, you climb up 25 feet to kind of clean out the gutters or to, hey, I want to paint this trim up here on the second floor of the house and stuff. I always want to say, what are people thinking? Because are there some jobs that it's just best to leave to the professionals? And it seems to me climbing ladders is absolutely one of those things. At it, beyond a certain age, going up and climbing around on your roof to try to clean out gutters or whatever. Remember Packer great Max McGee used to be a broadcaster on TMJ doing the Packers games? I mean, he, he passed away. He fell off his roof. He was up on a roof, you know, cleaning out gutters. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I really believe that there's two types of people in the world. <clears throat> the amateurs who stay off of ladders at all costs, and the amateurs who just, I'm up on that ladder, I can do it myself. I don't understand that that second breed. Are you one of the, I'm going to climb the ladders or not? And for, I don't know, I, I think this is also one where you get the spouses involved and the spouses are going, what do you mean you're going to climb up and you're going to try to clean out the gutters on the second floor and you're going to get up on a 25-foot ladder? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. Ladders. Is it crazy to climb these ladders if you are, in fact, an amateur? Is this one of the times when it's just best to leave it to the people who really know what they're doing? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. When I, when I saw this story about this congressman who was seriously injured this week, 
Um, and, and then it turns out he, he fell off a ladder. He's 25 feet above the ground, and he's, like, trimming tree branches and things like that. One of the branches comes down, hits the ladder. He falls. He is lucky that he's not paralyzed for life. And I guess I just kept thinking about this. What's he doing up on a 25-foot ladder? Uh, let's talk to Joe in Mequon. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Well, uh, I, I can empathize with this. Uh, when I moved into a new condo about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was in my my late 50s and decided I was going to wash the upstairs windows outside. So I extended the ladder up, and up I went. Everything was fine. And then, unfortunately, the ladder, the bottom of the ladder, because the uh, of the soil down below was kind of immature, the ladder went out from under me, straight out from under me, Wow. So down I was going. I managed to kick off the wall because right below me were air conditioning units. I would have killed myself if I'd landed on them. Kicked off the wall, did a shoulder roll, uh, and then the ladder came down on my leg and split it wide open. So the bottom line is, is I'm never going to do that again, nor should anybody in his 50s. <laughs> it's just, as you say, there are people that, and I used to work with a roofing crew years ago, and I was very spry on a ladder. But at some yeah. point in your life, you got to say, no, 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 none of that anymore. Other than a little gutter cleaning here and there, no way. Yeah, no, Joe, th- thanks for the call. I, I appreciate the perspective. I guess that, that's how I, <clears throat> and, and I just remember my, my, my late wife and my current wife, whenever <clears throat> I'm even thinking about, and I, I would never think about getting up on a 25-foot ladder, but whenever I'm even thinking about getting up on one of those, like, 8-foot ladders and stuff, it's always, okay, make sure that somebody's around you to, to steady the ladder to make sure something like this this happens. It's just, I think, you know, everybody thinks that they're invincible, and the truth is, you know, you can end up falling 25 feet from a ladder. 855-616-1620. Um, let's see. Jeff, I'm a 60-year-old iron worker. Um, you know, prior to about 1997, we never wore harnesses. Some five years I was clean, ago, I was cleaning my gutters at home, 30 feet above the ground. I decided at that point in time, I'm never going to do that again. Jeff, I used to build houses, so I've been on ladders a lot. For now, uh, for my job now, I still climb extension ladders occasionally. I'm going to be 58, but I'm experienced. But ladders for trees and trimming trees is never a good idea for exactly what happened to the congressman. Jeff, Old guys, well, this guy was 44, old guys climbing ladders keep EMTs like me in business. Seriously, though, safety lines save lives. Um, Jeff, I bought a really long telescopic probe for upper-level window cleaning. Well, I mean, and, and again, there's there's ways to do that. I'm, I'm just saying I, I see these stories, and you hear the horror stories about this, and you want to say, man, congressman, you know, maybe, maybe this is time to, to call in the professional tree trimmers. Jeff, leave it to the pros. I was nicked off a 12-foot stepladder uh, 25 years ago with a chainsaw in my hand. What looked like a simple job almost cost me my life. The low-hanging tree limb spread out approximately 30 feet from the mature ash tree. I cut it, hit the ground. It hit the ground, bounced back up, and knocked me off the ladder. Fortunately, my wife will not let me go up a ladder again unless it's for changing light bulbs um yeah well i think there is that element there um jeff no ladder climbing in our house i tell my husband just call the guy 
<laughs> have a good weekend. Um, Jeff, my rule of thumb is no more than 12 feet. After that, I leave it to the experts. Jeff, I climb trees and cut them down for almost 40 years professionally. The accident that you described that the congressman went through is a very common thing that happens for homeowners. My advice is hire a professional to do this. Let's talk to Dick and Shawno. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, um, I've been going up and down ladders as a regular guy, a non-professional, since I was a kid, and probably because my dad was going up ladders. Um, I will have to say, as you, you asked the question, why would you go up of a ladder? Well, the answer is simple. You can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did. Okay, yeah. I, I, I did about six years ago uh, trimming trees in the backyard of our house in Shano. Um, the, I didn't fall off the ladder. The ladder tipped over. And uh, I came down on my left leg. Um, the pain was unbelievable. Uh, it has to be much worse than, than uh, childbirth because if childbirth <laughs> is that bad, women wouldn't have kids. Uh, I ended up with a severed uh, ACL which I never had fixed, uh, uh, damage to my fibula, plateau of the fibula, and I think that I had an undiagnosed, massively sprained ankle. Mm-hmm. And I was on crutches for two months. Now, I still will go up with a ladder, but I limit it to to a eight-foot ladder. I don't go up any higher than uh, a few steps. And thankfully, we only have a single-story house to clean gutters out of. Yeah. No, it makes sense, Dick. Thanks for calling. I mean, these are, I mean, again, it just, you look at all the bad things that, that can end up happening, and sometimes there, there are things that, you know, you just, you kind of leave it to the, the professionals. Let's talk to Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you? Good. What do you think? Good. Well, you know, my dad's 91, uh, believe it or not, and um, he will not take help. Uh, So my husband and myself have to go and, you know, uh, help expedite the whole situation instead of, and we've tried. I've given him gift certificates, you know, for, you know, a, a home you know, basic, you know, like those gutters or, you know, something like right. that. And um, I I don't doubt that something bad's going to happen, but the family brawl that happens because I'm suggesting <laughs> something safe. Uh, and I've never said, hey, Dad, you can't do it. Um, but, you know, so now I'm involved. My husband's involved. It's like a group effort. <laughs> Because you know nothing good's going to happen to this. You know it's only a matter. It's only a matter of time before your ninety-one year, two-year-old dad is up on a ladder and loses his balance, or something bad's going to happen. And telling you the story. Yeah, I'll be calling you and telling you what happened. I mean, it's it's, but yeah, and it's just like you know, I'm not telling him he can't do. It's such a delicate thing, but. But it's like, come on, you know, if you if something happens, do I want to deal with a uh, brain damage situation right. or you know broken hips and all this other stuff? I mean, really, can you just be right. Um, right. Yeah. realistic? No, no. I, I th- thanks for the call, Chris. I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I think I think the both my my late wife and my current wife who were both very and it may it may, might be me. It's like don't even think about going up on like the, these high ladders. I mean, if you got a first floor and you want to go up on a 
a step ladder or you want to go up on you know one of those ladders at six feet that that's one thing but don't even think about going up on any of those other stuff because i think they were always afraid that it's one thing if you fall off and you kill yourself it's another thing if you fall off and you just seriously injure yourself so then they have to take care of you i i I, no that's not really true they i think they just didn't want me to hurt myself but I, i was looking at this story and i guess that was just my take on this it's this this congressman who ends up hurting himself, and it's because he's he's trimming branches 25 feet above. We're also getting a ton of texts from people who are like professional tree trimmers, and for whatever it's worth, their their message is, you know, this is that even tree trimmers don't use ladders anymore, and if they use ladders, they've got the security things, and most of them have like the bucket trucks, and they say this is, it actually is a relatively common thing because you're up there, you've got the chainsaw or the regular saw or whatever, and you're leaned out, and the thing falls and it hits the ladder, so this this is not unusual. So, like I say, it's my new Wagner's rule of life. This is Wagner's rule of life number 12. When it comes to 25-foot extension ladders, leave it to the professionals. I love the text on this. Jeff, my friend was cutting treetops using a cherry picker when it tipped over. He's okay now, but four years ago he was in rough shape. No more ladders or cherry pickers for him. Jeff, if what you're doing should be accompanied by calliope music, you should rethink your plan. Jeff, I do it because I can, I have and I can. I guess I'm just a guy. Jeff, most of the time people realize they shouldn't be on the ladder is when they are on their way down. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Tell you what, I have a deal with people who have to climb ladders to do professional sort of stuff. You don't do talk radio, and I won't climb the ladders. We'll just make that our deal. So, very glad to have you with us. We'll continue to keep you updated about what's going on in the roadways. If, if you're just tuning in, all lanes on southbound I-894 are closed at Beloit Road. The reports are there was a crash involving a plow truck. Um, I have an update from the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office. Full freeway closure underway southbound I-894. All traffic being diverted off at uh, Beloit Road. A plow truck truck driver was involved in a crash. He sustained serious injuries. He's expected to survive, um, but so they're, they're He's been conveyed to an area hospital, but it's a mess on the roadways. I'm looking at a couple of the pictures of this, and uh, bottom line is whenever you hear the term full freeway closure, you want to avoid that. So if you're in that area, I-894, southbound Beloit Road, just just avoid it. We don't have an estimate right now as to when it's going to be cleared or when it's going to open up. So my best advice is just you know, just don't aggravate yourself on a Friday afternoon. Just stay away from that area while they clear this up. All right. The the president speaks. Now, for the last week or two, the, the phrase I've used, it's an, it's an old-fashioned phrase, hoisted upon one's own petard. You know, Joe Biden has been so very self-righteous about Donald Trump. And, and let, me, let me kind of back into this. If you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I have been extremely critical of these these classified documents and top secret documents that ended up in, in Trump's profession at, at possession at Mar-a-Lago. I, I just I don't understand how that could have happened and how it could have gone on as long as it did. And once they, they found that there were some classified records there, I don't understand why, you know, Trump or people on his behalf didn't drop everything and simply say, OK, let's. 
Let's take this seriously. Let's catalog what we've got, and let's get it back to the National Archives. This this issue with now the special counsel looking at Donald Trump and all, which is to me completely and totally uh, avoidable. There's just no question about it. It was avoidable. And you can argue whether or not he should be charged with a crime, given what's happened with Biden. There's not going to be any indictment. I can almost guarantee you with that. And if there was an indictment, there'd never be a conviction. But again, it, it's it's an unnecessary distraction. However, having said that, you have Joe Biden, who self-righteously goes on 60 Minutes you know, a few months ago and just uses it an opportunity to rip into Trump. It's unconscionable that something like this could happen. I, I can't even imagine how this could happen. And then it turns out in early November that it, the same thing or something similar is going on with Joe Biden. Now, I understand that there are fewer documents, and I understand that the circumstances are in some respects different, but the bottom line is Joe Biden leaves the vice presidency six years ago. He takes a bunch of documents that he's not supposed to take with him. A bunch end up in a, in a closet in an office that he has at the University of Pennsylvania, and nobody knows about it till. Um, again, some of his lawyer, they're closing, they're clearing this out, and he's got people who are packing this up, and they go in and they look at one of these boxes, and they find that there's classified and or top secret documents that are there, and they've been there for, well, probably six years. So this happens in November before the election, a couple days beforehand. Biden makes the decision that they're not going to go public with this. They contact the National Archives and we say we found these, but but nobody tells nobody tells the public that this is is there because I think they hoped that this whole thing was going to go away. Well, it then turns out that after saying, oh, this is all there is, well, it turns out that there's documents that they find that are in the garage at his house in Wilmington, Delaware, the famous Corvette Joe sort of things. You know, they're, they're, they're just in this box that's sitting in, in the garage, and there's more of those. Then they find another document that's there. So now there is a special counsel, and I'm sure they're going to be looking at a couple things, including the fact that, the Biden administration was less than forthcoming uh, about all this because the truth of the matter is until, and I think it was CBS News that broke this, that the public didn't know. And I, I don't know that we would still know to this day were it not for the fact that this all became you know public and it became disclosed. So anyhow, Biden, who looks at, at best looks incompetent, at worst I, I'm, I'm not sure what the worst is. Well, Biden is clearly irritated that he now has to answer the, these questions. And so he kind of lashes out yesterday, defending his administration's handling of the discovery of these documents. And he says, oh, there, there's no significance to this at all. There's no there there. Um, a president said a handful of documents had been found that had been, quote, filed in the wrong place. Filed in the wrong place. Now, I don't know about you, but for example, when I, I don't know, when, when I think back on the garage, I lived, I lived in my house in Whitefish Bay for 30 years, and you know, in the garage we had some, some boxes, and some of those boxes 
might have had stuff in them. I, I don't really think the documents in there were filed in the wrong place. They were just, you know, stashed in, in a box in a garage. And I would argue that, I don't know, stashing documents in a box where you keep your Corvette isn't exactly filing documents. But anyhow, he says that his administration immediately turned over the documents to the National Archives, was cooperating with the Justice Department and looking to get thing this resolved. But I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I have no regrets, Mr. Biden said yesterday. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, look, I, I think you can make the argument that this is different than, than what went on with Trump. I think you can make the argument that a lot of Trump's problems were, I, I think, brought about by the fact that instead of just immediately cooperating, they decided to give less than full cooperation. But, but at the same time, this idea that Joe Biden, who's been involved in the drip, drip, drip of this information, that you didn't have stuff that was timely declared, is now saying, oh, it's no big deal. There were some documents filed in the wrong place. There's no there there. Do you buy what the president is selling? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, and I want to have put this all in, in perspective. I I understand that the Joe Biden classified document thing is different than Donald Trump. There were fewer there were fewer documents, and I understand that you know they once they found them, they went and they they started at least disclosing to the Department of Justice that they had found them. Whereas Trump kind of dug his heels in. Still don't understand that. But I, so I understand there, there's differences. But at the same time, you've got Joe Biden who smugly and self righteously talked about I can't believe how he had these confidential documents, these top secret documents, and now it turns out that that he's had his own stash of documents stuck in like a closet in his office at the University of Pennsylvania or or stuck in his garage. In, in Wilmington, and, you know, his response to this is, well, I, I understand that a handful of documents have been filed in the wrong place. They're not filed at all. They're, they're stuck in folders and in boxes, for goodness sakes, in your garage. So, I mean, don't try to, to get away with that. And he says there's no there there. Well, okay, I look, I don't think this is an impeachable offense. I don't think that he's going to be indicted. I don't think Donald Trump is going to be indicted either. But I, I think this makes... Biden look extremely bad. I think the timing and the fact that the disclosures were not made public for, well, the, the better part of two months, I think that's something that raises eyebrows as well. Do I think this ends the presidency? No. But I do think, okay, for everybody out there who thinks that Joe Biden is going to run again, this is the stuff of great 30-second political ads where you have a picture of Biden on 60 Minutes talking about how terrible this was that Trump did it, and then... You know, Joe pulling out of his driveway in Wilmington, Delaware, in the box with the secret records behind him. It, it's, to me, to say there's no there there and to be upset that this is even an issue. He should be upset with the fact that he took these documents that he shouldn't have had in the first place. Paul in Oconomowoc. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Well, hi, Jeff. Uh, hi, thanks Paul. for taking my call. Sure. Um, you know, I was in the military and I ha I was only a sergeant. I mean, I'm a kid from Wauwatosa, and I had a secret clearance. 
And I really realize the government classifies just reams of information every single day. And the vast majority of it is very innocuous. You know, it affects a really small contingent of people. Maybe maybe it's the, the wheat shipments from Argentina to Chile. Who knows? And, you know, by the time you're the president, I would imagine, you know, classifications become meaningless. You know, they're probably using it for toilet paper in the White House. And I don't think the general public really appreciates that, you know, hey, secret, top secret, that's all very exciting and sexy. But quite frankly, the vast majority of this is meaningless. And I'm surprised we have not heard what, you know, what's on these pages. We haven't heard yeah. word one about that. Does that make any difference? And, and I mean, I ask that seriously because, I, you know, the I don't think look, I don't think Trump had his documents. and I don't think Biden had his documents with the intent that they're going to sell these to North Korea or give away state secrets. My thinking is with Trump. He didn't want to leave the White House. These things were in the personal residence. They grabbed a box, and, and they—that's what this was. Biden, probably the same thing. He leaves the vice. But he doesn't know where documents are, so I don't know that there's any evil intent. And I don't know that these are. Again, it's not the secret to the A bomb in 1940, whatever. But but should that make a difference? If they're not supposed to have classified documents, then aren't they supposed to have the classified documents? Well, it creates an appearance of irresponsibility, no doubt. Uh, but again, I'm curious, what was on this, these documents? And I think when you, when you have that information, you might shrug your shoulders and say, boy, yeah. this is a lot about absolutely nothing. You know, but, yeah. you know, we got to keep our secrets. So that's why we have the classification system. You know? Yeah, thanks. For, thanks for the call, Paul. I appreciate it. And that goes back to something I've been saying since this, this whole thing started. And I just... It, to me, it is also mind-boggling that we, we don't keep track of, of these documents, that, that there's no that there's no you, you don't sign out the documents. I, mean, I understand if you're the president or vice president, you have access to this stuff, but but that you don't that there's no that you don't sign these out, that there's no record of, hey, you know, President Trump or President Vice President Biden took out these particular documents that are marked as top secret. And there, there's not anybody to say, hey, where are these? I mean, okay, the, the, keep in mind, these documents that Biden had, he's had for. Well, what, over six years that, as he describes it, I love the phrase, filed in the wrong place. They're stuck in a box. He has no, my guess is he has no clue he even has them, which might even be the, the scarier sort of thing. And I guess my reaction when he says there's no there there, maybe, but that's, that wasn't the position he took when you know he saw this as a political way to embarrass Donald Trump. And by the way, I think Trump should be embarrassed by the way he handled those documents. But Biden is now, I mean, he's in, while the situation and the facts are different, bottom line is they both ended up with classified documents that they should not have. And the fact that Biden says, well, okay, we've, we've been cooperating, but then there's, that, again, that drip, drip, drip. Every time they say, okay, these are all the documents we have, then there's another story, no, nah, we went into the house and we found a, a bunch more. Jeff, I believe what Biden is selling. After all, he's close to 80 years old, and I'm not sure he could remember what he has. Well, my, my guess is Biden was as surprised as anybody about this, because my guess is he had no idea what was crammed in, oh, I'm sorry, I want to use his phrase, what was filed in the wrong place, you know, stuck in this box in his garage next to his Corvette. I, I'm, I'm sure he had no idea what was, was in there. 
Um, but at the same time, I don't know that that changes the dynamic. Jeff, where is the library in the national? Where what is the library for in the national archives? Um, yeah, um, Jeff, there is no overarching repository cataloging of the total number of descriptions of the classified document universe. Thus, we don't know what might have disappeared without anyone knowing it. See, that's that I think, and that's from Wendy, is a great point that that's out there. The only reason we know about, like, for example, the Biden stuff is because it was turned up. You know, who knows what other stuff is out there? Who knows what stuff, if you want to be apolitical, who knows what stuff might be sitting around, you know, in in Texas with former President Bush? Who knows what might be in Chicago with Barack Obama? Who knows what might be, you know, in upstate New York with the Clintons? I mean, that's... That's, I guess, where there's the issue um, that, that's that's out there, and and we just we just don't even know because people just stumbled upon this. But I do love the idea. It's been filed in the wrong place. Now, filed in the wrong place is, I don't know where in in your office. You've got the file drawer, you're an attorney, you've got the, the physical, to the extent we still use physical files, and you've got the, the Wagner file that is, um, it's supposed to be in with the W's, and it's stuck in the Neumeyer, it's in the N, so it's after Neumeyer. That's filed in the wrong place. Sticking classified documents in a box in your garage um, by your Corvette is not filed in the wrong place. And and Biden can poo-poo it. And again, I don't think this is a huge national security scandal. I'm not arguing that it is. But for him to just get indignant about it and say, well, there's no there there. Well, okay, Mr. President, you, you might be right there's no there there. But you didn't feel the same way when you thought this was a political issue with President Trump. And now what you're finding out is what's the cliche? You know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Another day, another police chase. Four people were arrested after Glendale police chased a stolen vehicle Thursday afternoon. So this is yesterday, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. See, here's the, here's the, the thing that's getting scarier about some of these, these fleeing instances. It, it, it's happening in broad daylight. It's happening in the middle of the day. We've had one story after another where it's not 2 o'clock in the morning. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon where you've got lots of people that are out and about on the road. So here's what happened. Glendale police said around 2 o'clock, officers tried stopping a Ford Fusion that had been stolen out of Milwaukee. So it's a stolen car, 13th and Silver Spring, which is not that far from Bayshore Town Center. Okay, so they try to pull over the car. What happens? Nobody stops anymore. The driver speeds off. Police then deploy stop sticks, which kind of takes out the vehicle. The four people inside the Fusion ditch the vehicle, thanks to the stop sticks, near 43rd and Clinton, and wait for it, ran off. The police caught them all, four males from Milwaukee, ages 20, 17, and 16. I don't have the ages of the fourth one. The driver was 20 years old. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and and you've got a 16- and a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old and some other fourth one driving around in a stolen car fleeing from the cops, 16 and 17 years old. They're, I mean, of course, they're supposed to be in school. We know that, but that's not happening. At some point in time, we've got to recognize that we, we've got to stop this. And, and maybe the deal is maybe we've got to start waving everybody into adult court when they get involved in this. And maybe we need to build a lot bigger prisons because these guys, if they get.
get out anytime soon. They're going to do the same thing again, and they're going to kill somebody. And we can't have that happening. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, I just sent something out, which is, I'm sure will. See, here, here's the thing. With this, boat, with this Biden record thing, don't any of you on the left have any sense of humor at all? And, and don't you have any sense of perspective? Because the truth is, Biden screwed up. Now, you, you can argue, well, it's not as bad as Trump. Or, that, that's, that, that's the point. Biden screwed up. Biden goes on national TV and mocks Trump and says it's unconscionable he has these records. And Biden's got records, too. And, and you know, that, that's the underlying fact. The facts of these things are always going to be a little bit different. But you, don't you realize the irony of this? So I, I had to send out a tweet. The president says there's no there there. And the classified documents found stashed in a box in his garage were filed in the wrong places. Sounds like Joe had an interesting filing system. I'd hate to see where he keeps his checkbook. Now, come on. That's funny. And, and I understand that, you know, for people, oh, Joe can do absolutely no wrong. Well, okay, he looks stupid on this, especially since he made such a big deal about Trump doing it. And if you can't see that, you, you really need to take the political blinders off, period. All right, the 2 o'clock hour of the Friday show, we've got Pop Culture Corner coming up at the bottom of the hour. We tend to do a little bit of lighter stuff to kind of go into the, the weekend on Perhaps a good note. First of all, let me just tell you how I've spent the last couple hours over the last couple of days. Um, I, I've been I've been binge watching that '90s show on Netflix. For those of you who were fans of that '70s show, uh, they they brought it they brought it back, and it's got it's got most of the old cast members in it. And what they've done is they've moved it 20 years into the future. So the deal is. All the regular cast members and stuff, they now have kids, and the kids are hanging out in this the same basement. And Netflix, 10 30-minute shows, it dropped yesterday, and, and I watched it. And it, they're, they're quick. You can go through them relatively quickly. And and you know what? It's I mean, am I going to say it's the greatest TV ever? No, but it, it's very, very much in the spirit of you know what was on that, that 70s show. And actually, I, I thought it was for kind of mindless light entertainment i i thought it was was good and i enjoyed seeing the characters from the original show almost all of them are, are back not in um not in every episode but because it, it does kind of center around the the new kids and stuff the their kids but it was interesting to see some of those those performers and most of them i think have aged pretty well you know over the over the 20 year period of time and i thought it was kind of entertaining so if you've got netflix and you liked that 70s show and you want some just kind of fun mindless entertainment over the weekend i i highly recommend it it's getting so-so reviews and stuff but i, I just I think I mean it's not like that '70s show was like like great television history. It was just a fun, entertaining kind of show, and I thought that '90s show was pretty good. So if you're looking for something to kill some time with over the weekend, you you can. There's ten episodes. They're kind of like popcorn. You can go through them pretty pretty fast, and I thought it was reasonably entertaining. I did it over the last couple of days. Okay, last weekend, a guy named Carl Hahn passed away at the age of 96. Now, my guess is you have never heard of Carl Hahn, yet Carl Hahn was responsible for one of, I don't know, the real phenomena 
of the second part of the 20th century. So who was Carl Hahn? Carl Hahn was an executive for Volkswagen. And he came to the United States um, in, in the late 50s. And his, his job was to sell VW Beetles to the American public. Okay? And because this was the time that, you know, everybody was into the, like, really big cars and, and things like that. And the idea that these little cars from Germany, it, that these little odd-shaped and funny-looking cars from Germany, the, the idea that these things would take off, it, it just, it, nobody thought about it. In 1958, the year before he took over, Volkswagen sold 61,000 Beetles in the U.S. He came in 1959. The number climbed to 100,000 in 1960, 200,000 in 1963, 300,000 in 1965. Now, the VW Beetle peaked at 1968 at at 423,000 cars sold. And, you know, the Beetle... You know, off and on was produced by Volkswagen. They, they discontinued it in, I want to say, 2019 was was the last year for production of the Beetle. But but it became ubiquitous in the United States because people absolutely loved them. Now, growing up, I didn't have a Beetle, but um, we had one. We bought a turbocharged Beetle in 2015, and it was it was a fun car to drive. It was actually it was it was my late wife's car, and then after she passed away, I ended up selling it because I just didn't need an extra car. But I'm telling you that 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 turbocharged 2015 Red Beetle that we had it was it was just an absolute blast to drive. Matter of fact, I would drive this car, and I would be amazed that I'm I'm tall. I'm six one. I was amazed at the amount of headroom that I had, and I was really amazed at the pickup this car had because I think that had the same engine in it that they have like in the uh, the VW Tiguan one, their SUV, and I'd be driving along the freeway, and all of a sudden I'd look down, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm going 85 miles an hour, better dial it back. But Carl Hahn was the guy that made the VW Beetle ubiquitous. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I wish they still made them, because I, I understand that we're, we're all about the SUVs now, but you know, I, I think back on this. The Beetle we had in 2015 was a fun car to drive. My guess is, for those of you you know who grew up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, you know, you, you, chances are maybe you had a, a Beetle as well. There was an appeal to that car that I think people, if you never owned one, I don't think people understood what it was. I loved our, our Beetle. Actually, there's days that I wish I, I had not sold it. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Let's talk about Beetle love. Were you a fan, and I'm not talking about the band, were you a fan of the VW Bug? And are you sorry it's gone? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. We're lightening up for the 2 o'clock hour of the, the program as we go into the weekend. The guy who really is responsible for making the Volkswagen Beetle, the, the, the bug, such a success. He, he passed away over the weekend, um, but at the age of 96. But, you know, they, they were selling very, very few VW Beetles when 
his name was Carl Hahn, when he came to the United States in the late 1950s in charge of Volkswagen, and, and in a space of like five years, it took off. And that 10-year span in the 60s, at one point in time, at a high point, they were selling 423,000 Beatles in in uh, the United States. Now, the, the car fell in and out of favor, and they've discontinued production of it starting in, I think, 2019 was the last year. But I, I had a 2015, and it, it was a fun little car to drive. Now, it was different than the original ones. I mean, the original ones had the, the motor was in the rear, and so they were kind of like dicey on ice and stuff. The The newer models had the, the, the motor was in the front and things like that. So, you know, the, I think the traction was better. But I, I think it was a fun car. What was the appeal of this? Let's start with Kent in Pewaukee. Kent, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, were you a Beetle fan? Um, well, I was introduced to the Volkswagen Beetles through my ex-wife. She had them. She loved them. Um, I really liked them a lot in the winter because just simply because they they went through just about everything, and you had instant heat. You know, because the the exhaust was part of the heating system. So as soon as the <laughs> engine got fired up and there was a couple minutes of heat, it, it was like a blast furnace in there. But uh, I don't know if you remember back in the 60s, the old Volkswagen Beetle TV commercial where the guy, where they showed a snowstorm and a guy walking out to a car and, the slow, and uh, drives to this garage and out comes the snowplow. And the slogan was, do you ever wonder how the man who drives the snowplow got <laughs> to the snowplow? And it was a Volkswagen Beetle. I, you know, now that you met, thanks for the call. Now that you mentioned, I, I do sort of remember that. Again, we didn't. We didn't have them. I mean, growing up, I, I just I didn't have them. But I, I always thought they were kind of cute and, and sort of sort of quirky. Um, towards the end, I remember talking to the VW dealer, and my question was, how many how many guys buy this car? And he said almost none. It, it was it was pretty much at least the, the latest generation was pretty much exclusively a car that that ladies bought and things like that. And it really. I mean, in many respects, it wasn't practical because there wasn't you, you, no way you could get four sets of golf bags or anything in there. But I, again, it was a fun kind of car to drive. Jeff, uh, nineteen sixty. I'm a big fan. Um, well, at least ten months out of the year, in December and January, that little open vent heater just didn't do the job. Jeff, I had a nineteen seventy three orange VW orange. Orange VW Beetle, which I loved, didn't know how to drive it when I bought it. It was a manual transmission with a Hurst shifter. A friend of mine drove it home. I learned how to drive it in my driveway, which was a slight hill. When I got rid of it, I got rid of it when the bottom rusted out. I had to scrap the inside windshield with a scraper in the winter. But to that day, I missed the car. Thanks for taking me down. Um, memory lane. Jeff, I had a 60s model Beetle. Rocker panels rusted out. I replaced them with 2x4s. Never had heat in it due to the no rocker panels, but it was a favorite car of mine. It was a go-kart with a stick shift. Jeff, I had one in the early 70s during gasoline shortage when I lived outside of Washington, D.C. No waiting at the gas station every few days because my Beetle got fantastic gas mileage. I loved that car. Huge, huge fan of the Beetle, Jeff. I still have a 74 Carmen Ghia. Love that, too. Yeah, a friend of mine in high school had a Carmen Ghia. Used to have an 03 Beetle convertible. I miss it as well. Let's talk to Heidi in Milwaukee. Heidi, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Hi, Heidi. I'm good. Um, okay, you a fan of the VW Bug? 
Yeah, I grew up with them. My I grew up with my grandparents, and they had one before I was born. I'm 63, so long time ago. And I remember that we got a new one when I was two, and I remember we got one with the first um, seat belts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then um, later on, my mom got remarried, and my dad bought her a Mustang. He was all excited about it, and she made him trade it in for a VW. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she didn't want a 60-something Mustang. She wanted the VW instead, huh? Right. <laughs> Yes, and we had that forever. No, they, yellow, they were, they were Sally the. We called it Sally yeah. the Yellow Bug. <laughs> Thank Heidi. Thanks for the call. These people who had them just I loved them. Jeff, I loved my two Beetles. They were so much fun to drive. Stick shift and all. Robin egg blue and gold with a sunroof. I would love to drive one again. These were early seventies models. Um, Louise in Cedarburg. Louise, you're on WTMJ. I have a 2001 yellow bug, and it probably was one of the last ones that had the vase for flowers in it. Right. Um, this has power steering. The motor is in the front. Uh, has a lot of room. Uh, has a, a you know open roof. Uh, I still have a uh, <laughs> a tape deck. Okay, and heated right. seats. <laughs> Yeah, and it's in really good condition. And you are right. Generally, when I park any place, like at the grocery store or whatever, and the guys walk past, okay, they smile. I get a lot of smiles when they see my car. And and it's just a lot of fun. When Cedarburg used to have an Easter parade, uh, we put spots, big black spots on the bug, and eyelashes, and we opened the moonroof, took a big golf umbrella, put flowers on it, and the members of the Cedarburg Garden Club put their hats on, and we rode in the parade with the other <laughs> bugs. So a, this <laughs> car cute. is just a lot of fun. It was a gift from my husband for every holiday you could mention, and I love it. I don't drive to Arizona, but driving where I drive is just perfect. So this is a lot of fun. It's That's just it, a Louis, lot thank- of fun. It is. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Maybe when those guys are smiling, maybe they're not smiling at the car. Maybe they're smiling at you. That could very well be the case. I, I will say this, and again, I, I had a twenty. I, we bought it from my my late wife, um, but it was it was that I was amazed that that the car was really good in the winter. But again, it was it was turbocharged. It it, it by that time it, it wasn't it wasn't the bug of the nineteen sixties and seventies. I mean, the motor was in the front. Um, four wheel drive. It had a big engine. Like I say, it's the same engine that VW used to power its its SUVs. It had a ton of pickup. It handled really well. And and I guess maybe. I, I th- other than the fact that it really wasn't it wasn't practical um, in the sense that you really couldn't put that much stuff in it or anything. But I, I do. I, I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't have, have ended up selling that car. Jeff, growing up across the street, my neighbor had a VW Beetle. Towards the end of its production, I picked up a black Beetle. It was after they widened it and made it a bit more manly. Turbo had cool lighting. It was an absolute blast. Now I'm waiting for the new VW bus, which comes out next year in the U.S. Yeah, the, the, VW, the VW buses, that's that's a whole nother story if you're a child of the 60s and 70s. Okay, thanks for taking that walk down memory lane for me. Again, I was just thinking about that because they discontinued production in 
in 2019, but it is impossible to describe how big those cars were. And the guy who was largely responsible for selling the VW Beetle to America, he passed away over the weekend. Jeff. When my buddy's parents were divorced in the early 80s, he gave his mom the 72 Challenger with the high-performance engine and the Hurst shifter. He took the VW Beetle. <laughs> there you go. See, that's that's it. There, There is a, a love affair, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in time, VW doesn't bring them back again. It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. And now, here is Jeff Wagner. It's Pop Culture Corner time, brought to you by Palermo's Pizza. We're so glad to have you with us. Palermo's Pizza, delicious frozen pizzas made right here in Wisconsin for over 55 years. Palermo's is Wisconsin's hometown pizza. Now, during Pop Culture Corner, we're so glad to have Palermo sponsoring us because that means that one caller, got to be a caller, although we read text as well, but one caller in the exclusive discretion of my producer, Charlie, I have nothing to do with this, one caller will win our Palermo's prize package for the week. It's a coupon good for two pizzas and a pizza cutter and all sorts of other good stuff as well. All right, so... Pop Culture Corner, if you're new to the show, we do this every Friday afternoon as kind of a way to ease into the weekend, and sometimes we talk about books, sometimes movies, sometimes TV, sometimes sports, sometimes travel, sometimes food, and and actually, a number of those were were on the agenda for today, except something happened yesterday that kind of changed my thinking. David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, and Nash & Young, and before that, David Crosby of The Birds, you know, passed away at the age of, of 81. David Crosby had just meteoric success in the the 60s, starting out as a folk singer and then with the birds and then, you know, moving on to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. To give you a perspective, in 1971, David Crosby made $7 million from the records that he produced, that he came out with, $7 million. And that was, that was 1971 money. I mean, $7 million. It is impossible to describe what, how big a star David Crosby was. Now, David Crosby had a lot of issues you know, moving forward. He got tossed out of the birds. He, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young broke up. He was a self-acknowledged junkie. He got into you know, all sorts of problems with the law. And you know, his, his, his life, in many respects, was a mess, at least for a long period of time. But later in his life, he had kind of this resurgence, and he came out with, like I think he's had four, he had four different albums over the course of the last 10 years or stuff. But he, a very interesting guy and a, a troubled guy in many respects with regard to life, but incredibly, incredibly talented. And one of the, the signature voices of the 60s and the 70s. So for Pop Culture Corner today and in recognition of the passing of David uh, Crosby, I, I want to talk about that period in time. And, and maybe you grew up in it. Or maybe you've just become familiar with it through, you know, uh, you know, oldies radio. Gosh, it's t- tough to say that, but oldies radio nowadays. But I, I want to talk about that period of time because, like I say, you, you can't, you just can't r- understand how big Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were, and even before that, how, how big the the birds were. So, for Pop Culture Corner this week, my question is: What band or what performer 
epitomizes that first generation of rock music, the, the 60s and 70s. When you think of that era, you know, and, and I'm not talking about like the 50s and the, the Elvis sort of stuff, the early thing, but I'm talking about, you know, post-Beatles through the, the later part of the 60s and then through the entire 70s, what performer, it can be a band or it can be an individual, you know, artist, what performer to you just screams out, this is, this performer is the soundtrack of the 70s? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Tell you what, I'm going to take a break, let my producer Charlie catch up on some of the calls, and then we're going to be back to take the calls. The performer who you think was the soundtrack, you know, the signature voice, if you will, of the second half of the 60s and the 1970s. When you think of that time period, what performer do you think of? Back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Pop Culture Corner, brought to you by Palermo's Pizza. This is Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Now back to Take Your Calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. I just love these. I love these segments because, I don't know about you, but it puts me in a good mood for the weekend. And so many great ideas. Uh, if you're just tuning in, David Crosby, of course, passed away at the age of 81 yesterday. And he was the signature voice for many people of the 60s and 70s. And for Pop Culture Corner this week, we're talking about who, who do you think, when you think of that, that period, the, the late 60s through the 70s, who was the soundtrack of that incredible time in rock music? Let's start with Julie in Brookfield. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Hi. I am well, thank you. Okay, the soundtrack of the 60s and 70s? Um, I would say Janis Joplin, um, one of my mom's favorites, and we would listen to her, me and Bobby McGee. She was like one of the first female rockers that set the stage for future to come. Yeah, you know, and of course the 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 thing is, me and Bobby McGee, which was you know the Chris Christopherson song that she made famous. That that came that dropped after she passed away. You know, she had, she had recorded that. She passed away of the drug yeah. overdose, and then that becomes a huge hit. Just you know, you really wonder, Julie, what if she had if she had been able to straighten herself out. You you wonder what that woman's career might have have looked like if oh. she had been able to live you know for another thirty or forty years. And if you look, you know, all the, like, Stevie Nicks or, or rockers like that, they all named Janis Joplin as one of their, you know, icons oh, yeah. that they follow, that they looked up to. Yeah, no, incredible. Th- thanks for calling, Julie. That, that, that's just a, a great choice. Matter of fact, you mentioned Stevie Nicks. Um, I probably, on our text line, we have at least a half a dozen people who, you know, include Stevie Nicks. Um, and I, you know, and I, my response is like Gold Dust Woman or Gypsy or whatever. Absolutely. Let's see. Joni Mitchell, um, Jeff, Carly Simon, Jeff Led Zeppelin, early 1970s. Can't argue too much with that. Jeff, for me, there are two. Harry Chapin and Jim Croce. Okay, I was, I was out... I was out listening to live music the other night, true story, and uh, the guy was playing Harry Chapin and Jim Croce songs, and you want to talk about another story about people who you wonder what their careers would have been look like, looked like had they not you know, passed away, and Jim Croce was a plane crash, and Harry Chapin was, a, was an automobile accident, as I recall, but you wonder if these people had lived you know, normal, natural lives, you wonder what they would have had to produce. Let's talk to Dennis in West Dallas. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, 
First off, I'd say uh, just about anybody that was at Woodstock, but uh, Santana is the person that comes to mind. And then a little later, a little mellower, James Taylor. That was like the soundtrack of the movie to me. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, thanks for calling, Dennis. I appreciate it. And of course, the, the amazing thing that James Taylor is still performing. I, I know he's he's out on tour, and uh, Santana a, as well. Um, especially from from the James Taylor thing, from that that folk rock, that that sort of California rock, where um, that yeah, the Jackson Brown and those sort of f- performers came out of, and the Eagles to an extent in the beginning. Um, you know, the Eagles would be another when you talk about soundtrack of the seventies. Jeff, for me, it's CCR. Yeah, play me a Creedence song. Um, John Fogarty, I loved it in my teens. I love it now. I just got done reading a, a, a biography of, of Creedence Clearwater Revival. And, you know, the interesting thing is for, you know, everybody thought these were like southern rockers and stuff like that. Now, these, these were some kids out of northern California who just, uh, especially because of, you know, John Fogarty and his incredible talent, was able to achieve this. Let's talk to... Let's see. We've got uh, Todd in Watertown. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Hey, uh, howdy, Jeff. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Sure. The soundtrack of the 60s and 70s. uh, Since since a couple of people are uh, getting into, I'm going to say Jimi Hendrix, because I think, uh, obviously, he died way too young, but he did cross over into the 70s, and I think he influenced Mm -hmm. a lot of people. I'm going to, and then the second, I'm going to go with Peter Frampton, uh, just oh. with that, that huge album he had in the mid-'70s, which really uh, uh, lasted uh, such a long time. You know, nobody—I don't think anybody appreciates I, I, how big Frampton Comes Alive was. You know, it, it's every, it seems to me right. that there, there's a two-year period of time where everybody had that particular record. You know, it was just—and, I mean, the, right. the songs on that start, are still timeless, absolutely. No, yeah. I, th- thanks for calling, call, Todd. I, I agree. And, and Jimi Hendrix, well, you know, Jimi Hendrix— Again, another one of these people that had he not died so early, you wonder what they would have accomplished. Craig in Horicon. Craig, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, man, I've never seen a following. I don't know how many albums they sold. Grateful Dead. Oh, I mean, you... years and years. And Jerry Garcia reminds me a lot of... Uh, uh, Crosby, you know, I mean, just, yeah. you know, big old boy <laughs> that loved to play. Right. And, and, um, you know, uh, David Crosby cheated death for a long time. You know, Jerry Garcia, not quite as fortunate, but yeah, you just think of the, the tune and, you, and you're right. When you think, especially for that, I mean, the Grateful Dead was the original jam band. There, there's, there's no question about it. Um, Craig, my producer, Charlie, obviously agrees with your selection. You are the winner of our prize package this week, so enjoy the pizza and the pizza cutter, which is really cool, by the way. Wow, that's terrific. Thank you so much, guys. Right. Hey, I, Thank- I tell you what, what a great weekend. Thanks for listening, Craig. I appreciate it. We'll have something else to give away. We'll have another uh, prize package to give away next Friday. Jeff, the Creedence Clearwater LP album is at Cole's Department Store right now next to an LP of Harry Styles. Just goes to show that good stuff does not go out of style. Jeff, for me, it would have been Leonard Skinner. Um, gone way too soon. Yeah, you had that plane crash. I'm a huge fan. Jeff, for me, soundtrack of the 70s, Arlo Guthrie. Great folk songs with meaning. I, I loved him. Um, yeah, whether it's coming into Los Angeles or, of course, um, of course, uh, uh, Alice's Restaurant. I, I saw, uh, okay, here's my little bit of trivia. 
I've told this story before. I was not at Lambeau Field when, um, when for the Ice Bowl. I was at Summerfest the night George Carlin got arrested for the seven words you can't say on TV or in Milwaukee. Arlo Guthrie was the headliner that night. Uh, Pete Seeger played number two, no question about it. Um, Jeff, for me, Leonard Skinner. Uh, I would say the Bee Gees as well. A lot of people voting for you know CCR. Jeff, for me, when I think of the 70s, it's Linda Ronstadt. Well, Linda Ronstadt... Linda Ronstadt was just absolutely incredible. Jeff, Tina Turner, a true legend who kept herself together and is still living. She is the queen. Yet, I mean, Tina Turner, you know, they really, I, I, you know, it was, it was, I was talking about Creedence Clearwater, uh, Proud Mary. I mean, that's what, when the, the Ike Turner review with Tina Turner, when they recorded Proud Mary, I think that's really one of the things that caused that band to take off. And, of course, Tina Turner has gone on to have such an incredible you know, career on her own that spanned not just the 60s and 70s, but the 80s and 90s. Jeff, for me, it's only one person. It's Mick Jagger, Joni Mitchell. No, Joni Mitchell is there as well. Carly Simon, uh, Jim Morrison, you know, from The Doors, of course. Jim Morrison, I, you know, I, I always I forget how how much incredible music The Doors put out in just a relatively short period of time. Jeff, for me, Steely Dan. Yeah, um, My Old School is one of my very, very favorite songs. Uh, Mark in West Bend. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, man, what a topic. This is awesome, and I think you're kind of in my age group, but um, I'm 67, so I grew up uh, in the 50s and the 60s, or not 50s, but the 60s and yes. 70s, and right, right. Led Zeppelin. And the reason I say the reason I say Led Zeppelin is, they every year during Fourth of July they always take the top five hundred songs and ten percent. This is no kidding. Ten percent of the top five hundred songs are by Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Fifty-two percent are by the Beatles. So for wow. me, it's Led Zeppelin. I love all the other ones. Steely Dan. I, I love Crosby, Still Nash and Young. I mean, I love rock and roll. And the other thing I'll leave you with: think about the commercials nowadays or. When they come out of the tunnel at football games or basketball games, they're not they're not playing the music of today. They go back <laughs> they go back into the seventies right. and, and they bring up. They're the playing music. the music, the classics. Yep, yep. They're playing they're the classics. Playing the hey, classics. thanks for the. You're, you're right, Mark. Thanks for the call. I mean, Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones, John Bonham, gone too soon. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Yeah, that was all these are great, you know, and it's I, I like to do these segments because it's a little bit of fun and it kind of takes us back. And the, the thing about this type of music is it's timeless because maybe for some of us, we grew up on on this. And, and the 70s is kind of when we came to age of age. But chances are, you know, even if you grew up in the 90s, you know, this music because it was your parents music. You grew up on this. And now maybe you're raising your kids to that music. That is why all this is so timeless. All right. That is it for Pop Culture Corner for this week. Special thanks to, again, our sponsor, Palermo's Pizza. Thanks to everybody for participating.